You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, family. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for having me. I've been praying since uh, Pastor Jamin invited me to be here that I would serve you well, and I hope that's what happens today. I was on a road trip several years ago with a dear friend of mine, Randy, and his 10-year-old son, Truett. And to say that Truett was obsessed with Pokemon would be an understatement. So along on this trip, Truett brought with him a a three-ring binder filled with all of his Pokemon cards. And halfway through the road trip, as I was driving, I would look in the rearview mirror, and Truett would be in the backseat, and he would hold up a character card, and he would explain the strengths and the weaknesses and how to pronounce the name. And he was very interested in what he was saying. And this went on for about 15 minutes until finally... Randy looked at his son and said, hey, Truett, listen, Pastor Dave is probably not as interested in Pokemon as you are. Truett looked a little bit uh, disconcerted, and then he spoke up with confidence and said, Dad, if you give me 30 more minutes, I promise you Pastor Dave will love Pokemon just as much as I will. (laughs) Jamin gave me the freedom to preach on whatever passage I wanted to. Today, I have picked my favorite passage of the Bible, and much like Truett, I'm convinced if you'll give me 30 minutes, these two will become your favorite verses. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Colossians 1. We're going to pick up in verses 15 and read six verses all the way down to 20. And I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself the most important question I think we can ask anyone who professes to be a Christian, and that simply is, who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to us? As we look at this passage today, I'm going to give you an answer that I think flows from this passage, and then I want to give you one action item to take home with you uh, immediately. So let's pray. Let's invite God to speak to us through his word, and then we'll jump into the Bible together. Father, you are great. You are sovereign. And we are here today because you brought us to this place. According to Jesus, you seek those who will worship you in spirit and truth. And Father, we pray that as we open up our Bibles, that's exactly what we do. We'd open up our Bibles as an act of worship. Jesus, thank you that you being eternally God, you humbled yourself and you lived among us. And you lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived. And you went to the cross and there you bore our sin. You bore our shame. You took upon yourself our unrighteousness, and you died. Jesus, the grave couldn't contain you. You are physically, bodily risen from the dead. You are at the right hand of God the Father. And one day, perhaps soon, you'll come back and you'll reign forever. You'll restore everything that's broken. God, the Holy Spirit, we pray this morning as we open up our Bibles that you would open up our hearts, that you would give us a greater affection, a greater esteem, a greater perspective of who Jesus is. And Holy Spirit, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't yet know Jesus, that you would arrange for an introduction to be made today and that lives would forever be changed. In Jesus' good name, we pray together. Amen. Colossians 1, verse 15. Let's just jump right in. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So much to cover here. So many rich words and big words and deep concepts that we could spend hours on just these couple of verses alone. But I think it's really important we begin with the beginning and define who is the he we're referring to. If you look at the text, it's Jesus. We are talking about Jesus. And two things are said right off the bat that I think need a little bit of explanation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? If you were to open up the original manuscripts of the scripture and you were to see the Bible in the New Testament in its original language, we would see the word here, icon. That's a familiar word to us, isn't it? We talk about icons and things being iconic, so we get the concept of icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. An icon can mean two things. It can mean Jesus is the representation of God, and it can also mean Jesus is the manifestation of God. Let me see if I can explain it to you better. I don't know about you. Did anybody else just binge watch during the pandemic? Just just anything your friends recommended, you watched everything, every episode, because there really was nothing else left to do. Uh, I did that. I saw some really good things. I saw some things that were kind of, eh, that was all right, and things that were really like, why did my friend recommend this to me? Maybe we need to reconsider our friendship. But one thing I wanted to see in person for a long time now Uh, because it's something my wife and I enjoy viewing together, is I wanted to see the musical in-person Hamilton. So finally broke down and thought, okay, I'm going to get Disney Plus. I know I'm not going to ever go see it, at least it's going to be a while probably before it comes back to Fair Park. And so I'm going to get Disney Plus. And we watched it. And Lynn Lynn, uh, Manuel Miranda did a great job of portraying Alexander Hamilton. But we would have to say that he was a representation of Hamilton. You can't watch the musical and say, I personally witnessed Alexander Hamilton. What you can say is I saw a man doing an incredible representation of who Alexander Hamilton was. The only way we could have said that we saw Alexander Hamilton is if the eternal spirit of Alexander Hamilton somehow, some way, possessed a human body, took form and performed in front of us. Then we could say, okay, I've actually seen Alexander Hamilton. Jesus is the eternal God in human skin. He's not merely the representation of God. He is the very manifestation of God. So when you and I look at Jesus, we don't look at someone and say, there's someone who looks like God. We look at him and say, this is God. Jesus is the image, the manifestation of God. The Bible teaches that God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternal, co-equal, Without beginning, without end, Jesus is God the Son who became human for our sake. And when we look at Jesus, we see the very face of God. Not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, look at the second thing that's said about him here. He is the firstborn of all creation. That sound confusing to you this morning? Like, hmm, I don't know that I feel really comfortable with that language. What does it mean that Jesus, if he's God, was... Firstborn. When you think of the biblical language around being firstborn, there's the two concepts that are presented. One is he's first in sequence, right? We would say that in any family. The firstborn child is first in sequence if other children follow after him or her. But there's also this significance biblically that we say the firstborn is also first in significance. It's really hard to say that this morning because my little brother is here and Bill is just the Bible. Don't hate the messenger. You know, hate the message if you want. (laughs) 
there's obviously limits to that. We're not to love our children more than the others. In Jesus' sense, we're learning already, if we follow through the rest of this passage, he's not a creature, he's the creator himself. All things that exist, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, ultimately were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and have meaning and, and, and significance for Jesus. So when we say that Jesus is firstborn of creation, in essence, what we're saying is he has the highest significance. He's most significant. Let me see if I can explain it a better way, perhaps. Any Dallas Cowboy fans in the room? Yeah, I know. It's getting harder to admit every year, isn't it? Every year, the response is a little bit more tepid. And you guys prove that very well this morning. I don't know about you. As I'm a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan, and hope springs eternal today at least. This is our year. And I've been saying that for 27 straight years without any meaning whatsoever. But it's our year until it's not. Now, if I was to use this language of the Dallas Cowboys and I was to look at the NFC East, the division they play in, I would argue, I think, undebatably, that the Dallas Cowboys are the firstborn among the teams in the NFC East. Now, let me tell you why I can say that. I'm not talking about sequence. I did some research. It's really fun to research football. It's part of my job. And I would tell you this, that if you look at the Cowboys division, the Giants came into existence, New York Giants, in 1925. Isn't that incredible? They're almost 100 years old. Man, that's old. The the Washington football team and whatever they're going to be called next came a little bit later in 1932. And the Philadelphia Eagles a year later in 1933. The Dallas Cowboys didn't come into existence until 1960. And some of you were alive when they came into existence. But if we look at the significance, and the only way you can measure significance is through Super Bowl wins, let's do that. Ready? The Philadelphia Eagles have won all of what? One Super Bowl. They're pathetic, aren't they? Anyway, God loves them. God loves them, and God help us love them too. The Washington football team has won three Super Bowls. The New York Giants, they've done pretty well. They've won four. How many Super Bowls have the Dallas Cowboys won? Five. I heard somebody say six. That's so hopeful. Yes. Amen, and may it be so. Using that language, we can say then the Dallas Cowboys are the firstborn among all the teams in the NFC East. Jesus is God in human skin, and he's more significant than anything that exists. But here's really where I want to camp out on today as we think through the answer to the question, who is Jesus to us? Look at verse 17 one more time with me. And he is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. That's weighty. That may be one of the most significant statements in all of Scripture. And it means that all things hold together with a common meaning, and all things have meaning in as much as it pertains to Jesus. So the opposite would be true as well. If if something doesn't find its meaning in Jesus, it has no meaning whatsoever. Jesus is the common theme that gives meaning to everything that exists, visible and invisible, on heaven and on earth. If you're taking notes this morning and we're answering the question, who is Jesus to us? The first point I want to make is Jesus is our meaning. Everything you are, everything you think, everything you speak, everything you do, everywhere you go, ultimately has meaning in as much as it has meaning according to Jesus. You've been trying to make sense of the world around us lately? It's been tough, hasn't it? 
and trying to understand how can we reconcile all these broken things, all these compromised things. Maybe that's even your own life. How can we understand that? Let me tell you today, it will only make sense as much as you understand who Jesus is and the baseline of his story. Here's the big mistake people make when they come to the Bible. They see the Bible as a collection of all these stories, and they try to give each one some sense of footing and meld them together. There's only one story in the Bible. The Bible is a singular story, and it's the story of what God is doing through Jesus. Let me break it down for you in four parts. God created, we've seen here, through the agency of Jesus, God created the world. And when he finished creating the world, you know what he said? It's good. He created our common parents, Adam and Eve, to to live in a way that they enjoyed him and worshiped him forever, and he put them in paradise. Imagine that. So we have creation. But act two in this story is fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They did the very thing God told them not to do. And when they did, all of creation fell with them. Everything was compromised. Everything was broken including everyone who was born in the lineage of Adam and Eve, were all broken. Yet God in his mercy and in his grace and for his glory, he's redeeming a people for himself, a people represented by every tongue, every tribe, every walk of life. God is redeeming. And his plan of redemption, as we'll see in just a moment, is through the person and work of Jesus. Creation, fall, redemption, and that's where we currently live in this story. There's one more piece to come, and it's the best part of all. There will be a restoration. There will be a day when God restores everything as he intended by making a new heavens and a new earth, a a place that's perfectly inhabitable for his redeemed people. But until then, we live in a fallen world where people get sick and people sin and there's injustice and there's climate change and there's things all around us that are broken and we see them and we feel them every day. And yet for those whom God is redeeming, he promises us as we wait for his ultimate restoration that he'll be with us. In our darkest days, in our hardest of times, God promises to be with us. I've got four daughters, three son-in-laws. We're working on the fourth right now as as we speak. I've got... uh, Four grandkids, just added a new grandson in the past couple weeks, and one more grandson on the way here in October. And my youngest daughter, she was in between semesters of her junior year, was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the doctors told us something that was somewhat reassuring. They said, hey, um, this is a curable cancer. If you, you don't ever want to get cancer, but if you want to get cancer, this is the type of cancer that you want to have. And they prescribed for her a very rigorous chemotherapy treatment. And so she began chemo. And we went with her her first of her first 12 chemo appointments. And it was the most uh, disturbing thing I've ever seen in my life where her skin and her eyes literally changed color as the poison chemicals came into her body to kill the cancer. Just saw her go from fair skin to, to yellow. And it was really a strange experience. And she immediately felt awful. And so she, she went home, and I, and I thought to myself, how do I make sense of this? I, I believe God loves me. I believe God loves my little girl. How do I make sense of this? And I began to think through that meta-narrative again. Okay, creation, fall, cancer comes into the world through the fall. We live in a broken world where sometimes parents bury their children. 
And yet for those who are redeemed by God, God enters into their suffering. So I begin to think, God, enter into Jillian's suffering with her. I know she feels in pain. I know she's scared. I know she even can feel alone. As soon as we got home from that treatment, she went right to bed and she slept for several hours. And dads, I don't know if any of you others feel this way, but when I'm praying that God would would show himself that way, I begin to think of all my failures. Do you ever do this? Where I think about the times I was harsh, the times when she was weak and struggling, where I would just tell her, get it together, do more, try harder. And I began to think through that, 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 that distorted image of who God is that I might have shown her. And I began to just pray, oh God, please overcome that. I know you can. She came to the dinner table a few hours later. She sat down, we began eating. It was just me, her, and my wife, Kara. And she just nonchalantly said at dinner, God spoke to me. <laughs> you know, maybe that deserves a little better introduction than that, but please tell us what happened. She said, I'd just woken up, I felt terrible, and I heard out loud the words, my daughter. And she said, Dad, I thought it was you, but I looked around the room and you weren't there. And God was just reminding me in the midst of this, he's my dad, he's got me. It's meaning. It's the meaning of all of life. Jesus gives meaning to all life. If you don't understand the Bible isn't a collection of stories, it's one story. It's the story of Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you and I are now written into his story. And he's redeeming his people in the midst of a world that's broken and fallen. And one day he's going to restore it and we'll be with him forever. And everything that's broken today, sin, suffering, death, all of it will be gone and we will be with him forever. Jesus is our meaning. Let me ask you a really important question this morning. Are you living with meaning? There's more things about Jesus I want to show you. Verse 18. Oh, yeah, real quick. Jillian's doing great today. I always forget to tell that part of the story, and people will come up to me awkwardly like, how's it going? You know, what do I say? And we're so thankful. She's, uh, she finished her treatment two years ago, and two years of this month, she's cancer-free. So we're just praying that God would continue to. Thank you. Thank you. And he is the head of the body. This is verse 18, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, 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 he might be preeminent. I've not had a chance to look at the the bylaws of Citizens Church. I know you guys are a relatively new church. Um, I haven't battled insomnia enough to go and look at your bylaws, but... I don't know if you have an org chart, but if you were to place Jesus on your org chart, guess where he belongs? Above everyone else. Jesus is the senior pastor of his church everywhere it exists. He is the head of the church. Sure, God has graciously given you men and women to help lead the church, but all of them report to Jesus. It's his church. You're his people. You don't belong to the leaders of your church. And get this. Here's this language again. He's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, Jesus was resurrected not merely as a ghost or a spirit, but physically, bodily. Why? What's the point? That you and I might live again? Yes, but there's more to it than that. That he might be preeminent in everything. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is incomparable. He's ultimate. He is foremost. Jesus is first. That's the victory of his resurrection. As one theologian says, there's not a square inch in the universe that exists that Jesus doesn't say, mine. 
He's preeminent over everything. And the essence of your life and my life as followers of Jesus is not that we make him preeminent. He already is. But we make disciples who end up living their lives in alignment with the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus in everything. So that the way you think and the way that you feel and the way that you speak and the way that you act reflect Jesus is supreme. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is first. Who is Jesus to us? Jesus is our meaning. Here's the second thing that I want you to know. Jesus is our mission. At the end of the day, Jesus is our mission. Now, it's gonna take me a little bit of work to prove this to you because I know you've thought, no, I think the mission is making disciples, yes. Of all nations, yes. But the end result of that is bringing people into alignment to the supremacy of Jesus. Let me show you, Jesus' own words. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is right out of Colossians 1. You see the similarities here? Based on that, what does Jesus tell us to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, take the good news of his gospel, share it with everyone because God is redeeming for himself a people that represent every tongue, every tribe, everywhere. And the point of the mission is that everyone ultimately grows to the point of aligning themselves with the lordship of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus, the firstness of Jesus in everything. That's the goal. Now, why is that important? Here's why I think it's really important. I'm convinced that the passion that we have to live on mission is ultimately going to be based on the object of our mission. And if the object of our mission is people, people are important. We've seen that already. People just aren't most important. Then mission won't take the high priority that Jesus wants it to have. Let me say it differently. When we begin as leaders in the church to talk about how can we live on mission, oftentimes we begin to think about programming and portals that you can enter into mission, and that's important. But I'm convinced of this. If we will continually preach the supremacy of Jesus in all things, mission will naturally follow. And what we really want to do at the white-hot center of mission is to have a passion and a desire and a purpose for the preeminence of Jesus practically lived out in the lives of his people everywhere. Karen and I now will occasionally have movie date night at home. I don't think anybody goes to theaters anymore, do they? Uh, I know I went recently, but I went with my grandson, and it was, a, it was an experience. But anyway, getting back to the thought at hand, we, we alternate turns as to who picks the movie, and sometimes we find one that's obvious for both of us. Uh, but Karen knows that I have a very limited genre of movies. She calls them the W movies, meaning I only like two categories of movie, westerns and war movies. I don't know what that's about. That's where my heart beats. I'll watch a rom-com. I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I can't watch sci-fi. I probably need to speak to Pastor Jamin. I probably need some counseling. I'm not sure what the brokenness is there, but sci-fi, man, it just doesn't do anything for me. It kind of creeps me out. Anyway, I remember years ago when we did watch movies in theaters, sitting in a theater, it would have been around 1998, and a new war movie came out called Saving Private Ryan. Remember this film? You've seen it? And if you remember the trailer, in the old days when we'd watch trailers and get a sense of what the movie's about, the concluding tagline on Saving Private Ryan is this time, the mission is a man. 
It's a really different idea of a war movie. Usually it's about conquering an enemy, uh, taking, taking an installation, you know, taking territory. But the idea that a war could be, the mission of a war could be about a single man captivated me. Here's the backstory. Saving Private Ryan is a story about a select group of men that are called in to go rescue Private James Francis Ryan. He's the sole surviving son of his mother. His three other brothers have died, and they're to go into combat, rescue him, and take him back home, take the son back home to his rightful place so he can console and help his mom out. And the idea is the mission is a man. Church, that's our mission. The mission is a man. He's not any man. He's a preeminent man. He's a God man. His name is Jesus. And all that we are and all that we do and everything we're about is growing together by his grace for his glory in alignment with the fact that he's supreme and preeminent over everything. Are we living on mission? Are you living on mission? Jesus is our meaning. Jesus is our mission. Let me close out with one last thought. Verse 19. For in him, Jesus again, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's not good news. The idea of Jesus and God indwelling a human being wasn't something God did out of regret or remorse. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And there's a purpose, purpose, purposeless, there's purpose. Thank you. Thank you. I'm getting a lot of help from this side today. Thank you. Uh, there was purpose in, in, in God becoming man. It was to reconcile to himself all things through the blood of Jesus. Church, we call that the gospel. That's the good news. Because of our common parents and their sin, each one of us is born with their guilt. You are born in an alienated, antagonized state with God. Yet God in his mercy and grace has made a way possible for us to be reconciled, to be declared righteous, and it's through the person and work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. You and I can receive as a free gift from God the right standing of Jesus merely by faith. And God is not only reconciling to himself and redeeming to himself a people, he's ultimately going to restore all things through the blood of Jesus. If you've never read much of John Perkins, you should read him. He has a lot to say about reconciliation in our day and age. And John Perkins talks about four levels of reconciliation that happen through the cross of Jesus. The first that we're probably all familiar with is simply this. Through the cross of Jesus, people are reconciled to God. Remember when you believed? Most conversion experiences are captured by, by two seemingly conflicting ideas. One is you feel guilty. You come to this sense of I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath. And secondly, you feel this undeniable, unconditional love that comes from God through Jesus. And you're reconciled to God through Jesus. Not only when we come to the cross are, are people reconciled to God, but people are reconciled to each other. Have you had this experience? If you ever had a conflict in, in the church, conflict in the community of faith, you can work things out and you can forgive one another. Even if someone has wronged you really bad, why? Because the blood of Jesus makes that possible. The third aspect of, 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 of reconciliation that comes to the cross are people groups to people groups. Man, we need that now. As a matter of fact, that's 
one of the important stories of the New Testament. The way the New Testament looks at the world, there's really only two groups of people. There are Jewish people, ethnically and religiously, and then there's everyone else who are called Gentiles. And these two groups of people came together who were hostile outside the doors of the church. They came together in the church and they found deep love and relationship and connection through the cross of Jesus Christ. So in the cross, people are reconciled to God, people are reconciled to people, people groups are reconciled to people groups. And when God restores all things, you're gonna love this part, people are restored to creation. Isn't that good news? Don't you feel alienated from creation today? Man, I, I experienced this morning, walked out my front door, got hit by a blast of air that was as if I stuck my, my head in the, in the dishwasher in its final cycle. And, and I shook my fist at the atmosphere and I said, we're not okay. I'm not good with this. We need Jesus. And one day when everything's restored, we'll live in a place where there's not heat and humidity like this. I'm convinced of that. Amen? If this is true, and it has to be, it's in the Bible, then the last thing we know about Jesus is Jesus is our message. You and I have been given the task by God, empowered by the grace of God, for the glory of God, to take the good news of Jesus and let people know in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, maybe even in our families, in our classes, in our schools, at the gym, at the grocery store, anywhere we go, in our apartments, you can be reconciled to God. What better news could there be? What more important story could you tell? And Jesus is the centerpiece of that message. Jesus is our message. But what is the world who doesn't know Jesus hearing from us? Several years ago, I was serving in a different context. I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we had planted a church that met in a historic movie theater right next to the University of New Mexico. And, and the community was real similar to what you would find near most universities, uh, very anti-religious, a lot of problems in that community with organized and institutional religion. And there was this young woman who was a shopkeeper. And I, and I would spend some of my days walking back and forth to the shops, getting to know the shopkeepers and just getting to know them and trying to pastor them even though they weren't Christians yet. And this one woman and I had some really serious conversations about Jesus. You could just sense her heart was being drawn to Jesus. She would ask good questions. She quickly accept the truths of the scriptures as we went through them. And so I woke up one morning and I thought, today's the day. Today's the day that this young woman is gonna come to faith. God, please make it so. I'm gonna be as bold as I've ever been. And so met her at her uh, shop. Several other people were listening in and I just asked her again. I said, are you ready to place your faith in Jesus today. You're ready to trust him. And she said, I don't know. So we went over the basics again and she confessed, I'm a sinner. I, I know that I'm a sinner. She even said, I know I need Jesus. I know that he's only, the only way I can ever be reconciled to God. And she was teary. And so at the end of that, after her confession, I said, then, then aren't you ready to, to put your faith in him? Can we pray together? And she said, no, I can't. And this time her tears became bigger and they rolled down her face. And I said, why? I don't understand. Why, why aren't you ready to become a Christian? She says to me, I'm ready to become a Christian. I'm just not ready yet to be a Republican. <laughs> I was dumbfounded as you were. I said, what? Where did you get that? Like, where in the Bible? We've talked often. Where, where did you get that truth? And she said to me, I've been following the members of your church on social media. I know what they put on Facebook. I know what they tweet. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you 
And we have responsibility as Christians in our culture to speak God's truth into it. I want you to be politically active. I want you, we need to have a prophetic place, don't we? We need to be prophetic people who say to our culture, everybody deserves dignity, born and unborn alike. Everyone deserves to have dignity and justice. And we want to speak to the things in our culture that are destructive, whether it's along the lines of gender or sexual expression. We want to be vocal on that. But those prophetic voices should never drown out the ultimate message, which is be reconciled to God through Jesus. Are we living on message? Jesus is our meaning. Jesus is our mission. Jesus is our message. What do we do with this? These are big ideas. And they're really exciting when we have big, broad, theological, philosophical conversations. What does this look like in your life today? If you're here this morning and you haven't turned from sin, turned away from living independently from God and trusted in Jesus, then I have hard news for you. You're unreconciled. You were born in an antagonistic relationship with Jesus. You're born by nature a sinner, and you've gotten really good at it as you've gone along. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. And ultimately, that sin will bring about the wrath of God. Here's the good news. Jesus has done all the work. His blood can reconcile you right now. Will you right now, will you right now turn away from a life independent from God? That's called repentance. And will you trust in Jesus? He is who he says he is. And through his person and work, you can receive from him the free gift of his right standing before God. And you can step into that by faith. Will you be reconciled today? What about for the rest of us? If these things are true about Jesus, that he's our meaning, He's our mission. He's our message. He's preeminent. It would seem to me that he's worth knowing and loving. You agree? How about we do that? There's a book that came out several years ago. It was the book for the time. Some of you are going to be old enough to remember it. Every young church leader, and I was a young church leader at once, grabbed this book and told all of his friends, read this. Told all our friends, check this out. Blue Like Jazz. You guys remember this book? Donald Miller. As quick as it came on the scene, it kind of faded very fastly, but that's the way it goes. I don't know that I'd recommend the book, but here's a good story from that book I want to tell you. Page 233, Blue Like Jazz. Donald Miller writes this. A guy I know named Alan went around the country asking ministry leaders questions. He went to successful churches and asked the pastors what they were doing and why what they were doing was working. It sounded very boring except for one visit he made to a man named Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry. Alan said he was a big man, full of life, who listened without shifting his eyes. Alan asked a few questions. I don't know what they were. But as a final question, he asked Dr. Bright what Jesus meant to him. Alan said Dr. Bright could not answer the question. He said Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair behind his big desk, And he wept. When Alan told that story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus that way. I knew then that I would like to know Jesus like that with my heart, not just my head. I feel like that could be the key to something. Church, that's the key to everything. Having a relationship with Jesus, knowing him and loving him, is different but not unlike having a relationship with a friend or a spouse or a family member 
we grow to know and love someone through conversation. Here's the action item I want to give you. If you're not doing so already, would you take the best 30 minutes of your day, not the most time, you're busy people, I get it. Would you take your best 30 minutes of the day? If you're an early morning person, in the morning. If you're a lunch person, take your lunch time. If it's late in the evening and you're a night owl, enjoy that time. Would you take your best 30 minutes and converse with Jesus? The way God speaks to us is through his word. So read your Bible and then respond to what you read in the Bible by simply talking to him. And the way we talk to him is through prayer. Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge together you are preeminent. You are supreme. You are ultimate. You are foremost. You are first. Lord Jesus, help us as your people to live in your preeminence. May every thought, every interest, every feeling, every word, every action resonate by your grace and for your glory that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we look forward to the day when you will restore all things, that we will be with you forever in a place perfectly situated for our enjoyment of you, with you leading us. In your great and glorious name we pray together. Amen.